As we mentioned earlier, this Sunday is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. And this year, to help us along on our journey towards Christmas, we are going to look closely at uh, the Christmas carols that we sing every year, our Advent songs. Now, we'll still be in the Scriptures, and that's not coincidental. That happens because the Scriptures are the place from which the the songs of our faith, the hymns of our faith emerge. This morning, we're going to begin in a very familiar place. Um, It is uh, our passages from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Let me read it to us. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would attend to our own hearts, give us your spirit, we pray, as we begin this journey towards um, the manger scene. We ask, Father, that we would see Jesus for who he is, that the, ch- that the, the question that the, the carol puts to us, what child is this, would be answered in our own hearts and minds this morning. We pray, God, that you, we would know him and see him not only as um, someone who has come in the flesh, but as our Lord and Savior, as the one who has come to fulfill all your promises and to bring the world to its conclusion, which is to be healed in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you may know that Christianity affirms that there are rhythms to human life. There are daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, of work and rest and worship. There are um, spiritual rhythms of fasting and feasting. There are seasonal rhythms of journey and celebration. Advent happens to be one of our Christian rhythms. Advent is the season of preparation leading up to the Christian feast of the Incarnation better known to us, of course, as Christmas. And Advent is meant to be a season of journey. It's a journey that begins with our own shared longings for a Messiah, for a healer, for a Savior. And it's a journey that ends with a magnificent royal arrival. The Bible describes it as a cosmic arrival when one day God will come back and return to us and he will will wipe away our tears. And he will bring justice, and he will raise dead things to life, and he will make the world new again. 
But before that, before that cosmic second arrival, we are summoned first to an unexpected first coming. It's a scene that doesn't feel unexpected to us because we know it so well by now, but the scene to them was very unexpected. It's a barn outside of a small Middle Eastern village. There's a baby there wrapped in makeshift cloths, and around the baby are shepherds and barn animals and a glowing new mother. To better understand the scene this morning, what it means for us, we're going to turn to the carol, What Child Is This?, and let that carol lead us into the experience of this particular scene. Now, you'll find the words to that carol printed in your bulletin on page 8. If you would turn there with me now, I'm going to read the carol to us, and then let it, le- let us, let it lead us as we explore it together. The carol goes like this. What child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and donkeys are feeding? Good Christians fear, for sinners hear the silent word is pleading. Nails and spears shall pierce him through, the cross he bore for me and you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant, come king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high, the virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. So Brent just said it so well. One of the reasons it's good for us to go over our Christmas carols uh, this season or to, to pay close attention to them every once in a while is because, as Brent said so well, familiarity breeds indifference, doesn't it? I mean, um, for example, you drive through the same neighborhood, some of you, for years upon end. Um, At one point, you had to learn the street names, but now you don't need to know the street names or the landmarks or anything else. You get home without any problem in the world. In fact, you get home so easily that you can drive through that neighborhood and yet mentally, what, be a thousand miles away, right? And it's the same with our songs. If you know a hymn well, you can sing the words flawlessly and yet mentally be a thousand miles away. So it's good for us to focus on the words of some of our treasured songs because in some ways, these songs, these carols are the neighborhoods that our hearts drive through to get us to Christmas. The carol this morning that we're looking at, entitled What Child Is This?, was written about 150 years ago. And what should stand out to you first about the carol is a little bit strange for Christmas carols. It begins with a question. It begins with a question. Look at the first line with me. The carol begins with, what child is this? It's a little strange for a Christmas carol because most other carols begin with a lot more assurance than that, right? So in Joy to the World, uh, you were first put in the the seat as an enthusiastic herald. You were telling the world to join in your song. In the carol, Angels We Have Heard on High, we begin as as reporters, as sure-minded people who are reporting what what we have seen and what we have heard, but here... Here we begin as confused observers. We are looking at a baby. 
and we're not exactly sure what to make of the newborn. What child is this who laid to rest in Mary's lap is sleeping? So the carol says the first thing that we need is we actually need help in identifying this baby. And that is the carol's purpose, in fact. That is to help you to know how you actually come to know who Jesus really is. I just want you to notice in the first stanza how the carol goes about this. The carol in the first stanza sort of forces you, it takes you by the hand, and it forces you to look around this improvised nursery at all the people around you. So the carol says, look over there at the angels singing in the corner. Look at the shepherds who are over there keeping watch by the door. Look at the, look at the young mother who is treasuring all these things in her heart. Carol says, look at all the people in the scene, and by their reaction, by what they're doing, you will actually know how to identify the child. You'll know him like they know him. You'll know him by worshiping him. You see, in the end, the Carol says that the only way that you and I can ever come to know Jesus is not by physical analysis. The Carol says nothing about how Jesus looks. The Bible says very little about that, right? We have a newborn, and we don't get his head size or his length, or his weight, or his coloring, or anything. The carol doesn't put a lot of importance either upon how we feel about Jesus, our felt needs. The the carol says nothing about what you should expect personally as you meet him, or says very little about um, how you should come to him if you're lacking in in motivation, or self-awareness, or self-esteem. According to the carol, Jesus is primarily identified. What child is this? He is primarily identified through worship. That is, through your adoration and your submission. The rest of the carol is a call to know him that way, by bowing before him. The carol, however, actually goes further than this, and so does the Bible, as you know. Uh, The carol actually teaches us what it looks like to be a worshiper. In other words, the the carol gives us a clue of how we know what it is we actually do worship if it's not him. There are three things I want you to see from the carol this morning about what it means to worship or how we know what it is we actually do in fact worship. The first is this. You will find that you patronize what you worship. Uh, That is to say, all of us, myself included, we all pay tribute. We give money (laughs) to what we worship. So look with me for a moment at the third stanza. It just begins this way. Third stanza says, So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. You may not be familiar with the Bible, but that is a commendation of another passage in the Gospels, um, another, uh, another perspective on the scene. It's a, a commendation from the passage in Matthew 2.11, who's talking about the wise men, the magi, of whom Matthew writes, They see the child with Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. And how did they worship him? They opened their treasures to him and offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Magi worshipped Jesus by opening their material wealth to him, by giving him what was materially important for him. And it's not allegorical. (laughs) This is a natural connection for us as well. The reality is this. We spend our money on And we materially celebrate that which we adore. You name it. It could be anything from a hobby 
to a home, to a style of living. The carol is here only affirming what the Bible says over and over again, that how we spend our money and what we do with our finance is connected to our hearts. Finance has everything to do, the Bible assumes, with worship. We patronize naturally. We patronize that which we worship. The second thing is this. The carol teaches us this about worship as well. That you will tend, and I will tend, and everyone, we will tend to center our lives around what we worship. Okay, here's where you see that. You see in the song, this is, a little, this is sort of interesting. This is where the song tricks you a little bit. Um, the song in the first stanza says that the shepherds are keeping watch. But I want you to notice what they're keeping watch on. In the first stanza, they're keeping watch beginning at their sheep. And then it says they're guarding what? They're guarding Jesus himself. They're on guard in the manger. Now, the passage we just read from Luke's gospel, it talks about the shepherds. It never says anything about them actually guarding the manger. It talks about them keeping watch over their flock when the angel appeared to them. But it never talks about them keeping watch over the manger. That is, in fact, the carol's interpretation, and it is intentional. It's the carol's way of telling us that the shepherds have a new center to their lives. They have a new, uh, a new priority. You see, the time and energy that they used to spend on keeping sheep, and that was, that was their whole life. The time and energy they used to spend on guarding their sheep, they're known by their occupation, not their names. <laughs> they are shepherds. All that time and energy, that priority is now transferred to Jesus. Their lives are given over to him. The same is true of us. We, our lives become centered on what we really worship. What is it in your life that gets most of your attention? Put it this way. What do you dream about? What do you dream about? Or to put it the opposite way. What do you, as the shepherds do, what do you guard at all costs for fear of losing? We center our lives around what we worship. We pay tribute to what we worship. We center our lives around what we worship. The final thing that the carol teaches us about worship is this. We gather together and we sing songs and we tell stories about what we worship. The angels are doing this. Mary is doing this. The carol is a call for us to do this. It's intuitive, though, in every place you go, worship always gives birth to communities. It gives birth to relationships. Worship gives birth to art. Worship gives birth to liturgy and to mission. We share what we worship with others. It's intuitive. We create beauty that reflects what we worship. You will proclaim that which you adore. And so in the carol, that's what it means to be a worshiper. Worship is not just ritualistic or mechanic. In the carol, worship is a way of life. Worship is, in fact, holy zeal. I want you to listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 45. Here, the psalmist writes. Put yourself in his position for a moment. He writes, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme as I address my verses to the king. My, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme as I address my verses to the king. As you read the rest of the psalm, you can almost feel the psalmist's hand shaking with enthusiasm because he is enthralled with the beauty of his king. 
And you can feel that in the carol as well. You can feel that worship is more than ritual. It's more than formalism. It is, in fact, the enjoyment of what you love most. The carol is saying that we should throw our money at Jesus. That we should make him the center of our lives and that we should gather together as people because we cannot wait to rehearse his heroics in our own lives. And right, that in itself would make this a pretty awesome Christmas carol. (laughs) It would make it a great Christmas carol. But you can't skip stanza two. There's more here. And in stanza two, what is left is this powerful irony that addresses the disconnect that we ourselves feel between what we should be as worshipers and who we actually are. So look at stanza two with me. There's this other question in the carol besides the opening line. So that makes two points of confusion in the carol. The first is, what child is this? And we know how to answer that. We know how to answer that by worshiping him. The way that we understand his identity is through worship. The second question you'll find at the beginning of the second stanza is this. Why does he lie in such a mean estate? That's a really important question moving from the first stanza because it tells us this morning that the storyline of Christmas is going to be radically different, radically different from the joy and the peace that we find in the first stanza. Why, after the first stanza, why is it that this child lies in this mean estate? Why does he lie in this lowly estate, in this humble estate, in this shabby estate? That is this. Why, after all, after we worship this child, why are we here? in a barn instead of a palace? How is it that a king ends up pierced by a spear and stretched out like a felon? The second stanza is, and always has been, the stumbling block of the gospel in lyrical form. And what the carol is reminding us this Advent, what it's reminding us this morning, is that even Christmas worship happens in the shadow of the cross. Even Christmas worship happens in the shadow of the cross. One of Jesus' early followers was a man named St. Augustine. St. Augustine once marveled at the fact that at the cross, no one is worshiping Jesus. No one. Okay, maybe a thief. (laughs) Maybe a few others, but virtually no one. And then he notes this, that at at the end of history... At the last scene in Revelation, everyone is worshiping Jesus. In fact, in the last scene in Revelation, the last scene is like a replay of this manger scene intensified a thousand times over. All the nations are there. Everyone's paying tribute to him. They can't take their eyes off of him. And do you know how Jesus appears in the last scene in Revelation? In Revelation 21, do you know how he appears? He doesn't appear as a lion. He appears as a lamb. This is what John writes about him. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the lamb. And Augustine said, you know, isn't that strange? It's strange because at the moment that Jesus actually became a lamb, no one was there. At the moment that he actually became a lamb, when he was arrested and bound and tortured and ridiculed and crucified, everyone had left. The disciples were gone. Even the father turned his face away. 
But at the end of history, Jesus reappears as a lamb, and no one can get away. Everyone is intoxicated by him. There is no turning away. The nations are enthralled. They are bringing him their treasures. It is the manger scene intensified a thousand times over. At the end of history, we can't take our eyes off of him. And so what's changed? What's changed between the cross and the second coming? Well, uh, it's not him, relatively speaking. He still appears as a lamb. What's changed? It's got to be us. We're the ones who've changed. And Augustine says that something about the lamb, something about the lamb has changed us from deserters to worshipers. Somehow, we have come to love what was most offensive to us. Now, I want you to think for a moment, don't gloss over that. I want you to think about the improbability of how that happens. Think about it this way. How do you actually change what you love? Think about it when the stakes are low. If you're a dog lover, we have dog lovers here. If you're a dog lover, can you wake up the next morning and begin loving cats? If you're someone who loves country music, I mean really loves country music, there are those out there, I think. If you're someone who loves country music, can you wake up the next morning and and give your affections instead to classical music? Let's raise the stakes a bit. Can you wake up tomorrow morning or the next morning or the next morning and can you make your heart love someone else's child like you do your own? It is incredibly hard to change what you love. I'm not sure you can do it. (laughs) And here's why. We never really feel like the things that we love most, we chose. We never feel like love is just a matter of personal resolve. We almost feel as if the things that we love most, that we were chosen by them. That somehow we have come to love what we love because those people and those things have given life to us. It is those people and those things that have blessed us. They have loved us a million times over. And so here's the good news of Advent and the good news of Christmas. You may not be able to change what you love this morning. You may not be able to change what you love this Christmas. But you can be changed by what loves you and how that love gets expressed in your own life. And I believe that's true because I believe it to be the true story of the church that we just looked at. Jesus goes from having the adoration of one dying thief to being the desire of the nations. And in both places, he's a lamb. You see, in the end, it's us that have changed. His love for us, his love for us have transformed us. And it's made us into worshipers. He has made us into his worshipers, literally, by loving us to death. I have a friend who went on a mission trip to Africa a couple years ago. He, he says, he would, I think he would say it like this, he didn't go reluctantly, but he definitely didn't go passionately either. He kind of went. <laughs> you know, and um, he was telling me this story recently, and now he can't quit talking about it, and he was telling me this story with tears in his eyes, and he said, you know, Chad, the whole experience changed me, but mainly for this reason. You see, I thought I was going to Africa to love the people there. What I tell everyone is when I got there, I realized that God sent me to Africa to be loved by them. And now I'm changed. I'm deeply committed to what God is doing there. He was changed by his experience. 
I'm sure many of you have similar stories. You were transformed by what you love. And that is the message of Christmas, but it's not the message of Christmas without the cross. And all to say, all to say, you can't skip stanza two when we sing it in a moment. You can never skip stanza two. (laughs) There is no theology of glory in the Christian life without also a theology of humiliation. There is no Christmas without the cross, and the carol will not let us forget that. The carol won't let us forget that even in the manger, even in those sweet little scenes that right now, in my house at least, got propped up in the living room this weekend because it rained all weekend and we had nothing else to do with four kids. (laughs) We put all our Christmas stuff up. In our our, uh, living room and in our kitchen and our dining room, even in the manger scenes, the foolishness of the cross is present. Look for it. It's in the foolishness of the ox and the donkey. Even in the manger, the love of the cross is present and it is pleading for you, for you personally to name the child, to know the child, and the only way that you ever can, through your own worship, through your own adoration and submission. This is how the long journey begins. It is, as Augustine says, it's how we get carried along the way as well, and it will be in the end, the place that we call home. Mary treasured up all these things. She pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reality that you have come in the flesh to love us. And that you not only came in the flesh, but you died in the flesh. That you subjected yourself to humiliation in order to raise us up to new life with you. We do pray, Father, that you would give us the burden that the carol gives us, the burden that Advent gives us, and that is to feel our own need to be healed, to yearn for Jesus as he came to us once and as he will come to us again. Fill us, we pray, this Advent season with more love for you out of your love for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.